What was behind the Odessa massacre in which 48 individuals lost their lives? Who was responsible? Was this a consequence of violence, which got out of hand, or was it murder? Stephen Lendman returns to the Global Research News Hour to share his thoughts on the anniversary of one of the most notorious incidents in the history of the Ukraine conflict. And what is the current situation in eastern Ukraine? Are the rebel forces principally to blame for violating the terms of the recent ceasefire agreement, as some media seem to be suggesting? We'll get the perspective of Roger Annis, a retired aerospace worker and trade union activist, and one of the editors of the new coldwar.org website. He'll speak about his recent fact-finding tour in the Donbass. On today's program, Eastern Ukraine, one year after the Odessa massacre. Bringing you the analysis beyond the headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 1st, 2015. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Hillary Clinton fairly consistently during the latest available month, is viewed significantly more unfavorably than she is viewed favorably. These polls reflect voter sentiment among this entire American electorate, instead of only within the Democratic Party, and so they have no bearing on whether Miss Clinton will win the Democratic primaries, which are elections in which almost all of the voters will be Democrats. And finally, on Thursday, April 30th, 2015, she will start to have a competitor in the Democratic primary race when the progressive independent U.S. Senator from Vermont, Bernie Sanders, will make official his entry into that contest. His name recognition is far lower than is Miss Clinton's, and he could hardly be more different than she is in terms of his assets and liabilities as a candidate at the start of the Democratic presidential primary race, as so there is no scientific way of knowing how that will turn out. But given Miss Clinton's clearly demonstrated trend thus far, at least between January 2013 and today, anyone who would say, as almost all pundits are saying, that she has the Democratic presidential nomination all but locked up, is merely pretending to an expertise that no one really has, bloviating instead of analyzing about the 2016 Democratic presidential race. That's from the article, The Hillary Balloon Has Already Popped, by Eric Zeus, posted April 29th. Oraz points out, 10,000 strong peacefully protest in downtown Baltimore, media only, reports the violence and arrest of dozens. In any event, while the looting was unforgivable, 
it pales in comparison to the looting by Wall Street. And while the media tried to make this a black versus white issue, remember that African Americans lined up to protect white Baltimore police, and blacks aren't the only ones who riot. And some argue that the violence was staged, or at least allowed to happen, for unknown, cynical political reasons. That comes from the article, Baltimore Protests, Little Known Facts, by Washington's blog, posted April 30th. According to a National Post article, quote, Notorious security contractor Blackwater trained Canadian troops without U.S. permission, court documents, unquote. Dated August 8, 2012, Blackwater Academy has had an untendered contract with Canada since 2006 for training to special operations troops and some police. More recently, a Blackwater Academy employee informed me in person that his company will be providing security for the 2015 Pan Am Games in Ontario, Canada. On the surface, what we know about the integration of paramilitary forces such as Academy into Canada's military security apparatuses seems fairly innocuous. However, paramilitary forces such as Blackwater Academy have a huge presence overseas and their covert operations, often with little oversight and considerable immunity from prosecution, are increasingly involved in assignments that, until recently, would have fallen under the exclusive domain of the military. Fascistic governments typically employ paramilitary forces to create a buffer of plausible deniability to compromise transparency and accountability. That comes from the article, Canada's Fascist Shift by Mark Taliano, posted April 30th. The mainstream media and bankster politicians keep harping on about the cheap price of shale oil being of great benefit to the consumer. Yet the more important issue for people is not the current price of oil, but the dwindling supplies of oil and gas. Since the 1970s, oil prices have been volatile, showing how this precious energy resource is becoming an increasingly scarce commodity. What should concern people in the U.S. is the fact that its oil and gas reserves are set to run out in the not-too-distant future. As Arthur Berman has observed, people are just not ready for the fact they are going to have to make changes in their lifestyles. That comes from the article, U.S. Shale Oil and Gas Industry is a Ponzi Scheme Facing Collapse by Dylan Murphy, posted April 30th. Reminding the world of the gradual encirclement and eventual invasion of Russia during World War II would make NATO's current encirclement and encroachment along Russia's borders look painfully familiar and could make NATO's already unpopular agenda even more untenable. Since the Russian bikers pose no real threat, it is clear that the decision to bar them from entering Poland and possibly even barring them from entering Germany to honor fallen Russians in a war that Germany provoked and Polish collaborators helped facilitate, is purely politically motivated. It is the West itself that often labels nations dictatorships and describes them as lacking freedom, 
when activities are banned simply for political reasons. Yet this is precisely what is being done now along the border of Poland. Free speech, an alleged pillar of Western civilization, ensures that even unpopular points of view and activism are protected. Honoring those who defeated the Nazis and fascism in Europe is hardly even unpopular, though it appears there are concerted efforts to change that. That comes from the article, Burying the Greatest Victory in Spite, Rewriting History to Demonize Russia, by Olson Gunnar, posted April 29th, originally appearing in New Eastern Outlook. Number three. White babies born in Baltimore have six more years of life expectancy than African-American babies in the city. Number four, African-Americans in Baltimore are eight times more likely to die from complications of HIV-AIDS than whites and twice as likely to die from diabetes-related causes as whites. Number five, unemployment is 8.4% citywide. Most estimates place the unemployment in the African-American community at double that of the white community. The national rate of unemployment for whites is 4.7%. For blacks, it is 10.1%. That's from the article, 10 Shocking Facts About the Baltimore Protests, by Professor Bill Quigley, posted April 30th. Originally appearing in Counterpunch. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Saturday, May 2nd, marks the anniversary of the Odessa Massacre when the Ukrainian Black Sea Port City's House of Trade Unions was set ablaze condemning dozens of people who had taken refuge there to a fiery demise. Early reporting by the international press painted the incident as violent clashes between well-armed pro-unity protesters who had organized a pro-unity march and pro-Russian separatists who had set up a protest camp for several weeks. A London Telegraph article depicted the anti-Maidan contingent as having initiated the violence when individuals adorned with the black and orange ribbons of St. George started attacking the pro-unity demonstrators. Bricks, petrol bombs, and even firearms were used during the melee. The anti-Maidan side retreated after being outnumbered. The pro-Maidan side destroyed the anti-government camp setting fire to the tents. The anti-Maidan faction made their last stand in the House of Trade Unions. The official record, however, is murky on whether the inferno was deliberate or an accident inadvertently started by the anti-Maidan group. To help clear the air and the smoke around this disaster, we're joined by Stephen Lendman, host of the Progressive Radio News Hour on the Progressive Radio Network and frequent contributor to the Global Research News site, and he is the editor of a recent collection of essays dealing precisely with the Ukraine situation. So, uh, Stephen Lendman, uh, welcome once again to the uh, Global Research News Hour. 
Oh, Michael, it's good to be on with you. And, of course, May 2nd uh, is the first anniversary of the massacre in Odessa. And the official story that came out of Kiev and Western capitals, especially America, was just a litany of big lies, one big lie after another. The real story was totally different. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we just kind of drill down on that for, for, for the time being? Uh, have we been able – because I know – in your book, you did uh, did a, an essay. You you contributed an essay dealing precisely with the Odessa massacre. Have we been able to nail down for sure that this was an attack by these uh, pro Maidan, uh, right wing fascist, uh, pro government uh, forces against the anti Kiev component? Oh, absolutely, Michael. It was it, it was it was these right sector thugs, these Nazi thugs that attacked non-threatening people. It was interesting how that chapter got in the book. The book the book had already was was uh, I guess just about to go to press. I want to say it went to press, but the presses were held up. And my editor at Clarity Press, Diana Collier, because of the massacre, wanted to get something in the book about that, which wasn't. And she asked me if I could write something quickly and get it in the book. And I did it that day and got it right to her. And she got it in the book, holding things up. And uh, we got that chapter in, just an, an extra short chapter added to the book. Uh, these people were viciously attacked by these right sector thugs, and the official story about their being they're being burned and so on and so forth. These people were killed, they were shot, they were strangled to death, they were thrown out of windows. The fire in the trade union's building was confined to one or two floors. It wasn't a blaze that took the whole building up, and it wasn't forty or fifty or sixty people who were killed. It was hundreds who were massacred inside. Some of them miraculously got out. And they were the ones who were able to recount what the true story was and how lucky they were to have been able to escape the onslaught that took the lives of the others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it certainly had been uh, it had been our hope to to try to get one of those uh, survivors with us, but uh, that wasn't able. We weren't able to allow make that to materialize. Um, so, in in terms of this uh, this overall scheme of events. Uh, one of the uh, the points that was brought forward was that of agent provocateurs. Um, what what is the uh, what what basis do you see in terms of uh, how this was actually uh, deliberately uh, the the, the anti uh, government side was deliberately set up? I know of no evidence to suggest the people who were against the fascist regime in Kiev had anything to do with instigating violence, Michael. This was totally instigated by these right sector thugs, these Nazis, who were brought into Odessa to, to, to instigate this, this type of violence. And whether they planned exactly what took place or not, I don't know. But the people who went to the trade unions building, they went to it for protection to get away from these thugs, thinking that they could be safer inside than on the street where they could be attacked in the open. And as it turned out, they literally walked through the gates of hell to their demise. And the numbers killed might have been something like 400, not 40 or 50. And again, I don't think anybody was consumed by fire. It was either shot to death, thrown out of windows, strangled, maybe maybe stabbed to death. I think there were reports of axes or hatchets, so maybe they were hacked to death. These were vicious people who committed these crimes. And you have to believe, Michael, that everything was orchestrated out of Kiev and okayed 
in Washington before anything of this could ever have happened. Okay. Now, how, how, what is your basis for saying that? Well, Washington installed the fascist government in Kiev. It's, it's a government, the democratically elected government of Viktor Yanukovych, certainly not the best kind of government anybody would want to live under, uh, very corrupt, lots of things wrong with it, but nonetheless, democratically elected, Washington planned for years the Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs uh, and East, uh, East, uh, East, well, let's just call it European Affairs, uh, Victoria Nuland admitted admitted that America had spent over $5 billion over 20 years or so to get the kind of government in Ukraine they wanted. They Through the Orange Revolution of 2004, they got rid of Yanukovych then. They put a guy named Yushchenko in, who was very pro-Western. In the election, I believe, in 2010, Yanukovych was re-elected, and he didn't play, game, didn't play the game that the Western people wanted, mainly Washington, so he was targeted for regime change and the Madan situation that broke out in, in around November of 2013 and then the terrible violence in the, around February 2014 all staged uh, these provocateurs were trained out of the country in Lithuania, in Poland I believe, maybe another country and they were brought in. The snipers that killed a Kiev residents, they killed police these were the people who were trained to do this uh, the Yanukovych government had nothing to do with it. And again, Washington was the orchestrator, instigator, planner of all of this, and they did it in cahoots with the people they put into power. You know, everybody, each scratches the other's back. Washington got what it, want, what it wanted, the kind of government it could control, and the fascists got to be the rulers of Ukraine, and it's a partnership made in hell, and we know what's been happening over the last year. Uh, Stephen, uh, not, notwithstanding those sort of like larger uh, forces, I'm just wondering about how you, um, in, in terms of like sourcing for you know you know all all, all the facts that you uh, uh, elaborate on in, in your your blog and your writing, your uh, as well as on your radio program, wh- what do you find to be um, fairly reliable? Do you, as much as possible, do you uh, manage to get? first-hand primary sources, or are there certain media outlets that you opt for more, maybe a combination of the two? No, I don't use primary sources. I don't go out and do that, Michael. I don't have a budget, and at my tender age, it wouldn't be as easy as it would for some younger people to uh, to uh, traipse around, especially foreign travel, Michael. Uh, that would really be out of the question for me unless somebody financed it. So I don't do that. I use secondary sources, and uh, I don't know of any site better than Global Research for accurate information on all the major geopolitical issues. It's just Mike uh, Michelle covers the ground so well. You can you can you can you can think of any geopolitical issue, and you've got to get wonderful information on global research. And there are other sites. Sometimes you, you spot things on a site you knew nothing about, but there's information on it, maybe by, by, by a contributor who you know who puts out reliable information. And this is the way I research my articles. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not able to get out it and, and get the information firsthand. Of course. Um, now, with regard to Odessa, and the, the, the anniversary is coming up, what do you make of the uh, the response or or lack thereof of of police and fire officials in town why why were they so apparently ineffective 
Well, I think uh, this, the, the, uh, the, the system was set up, and the police were controlled out of Kiev, and they were simply told, back away and uh, do this or don't do that, and they followed orders. Whether it was in Odessa when the massacre took place, the same thing would ha- has happened and does happen in other cities where the authorities in Kiev put in the people they want to run things, the heads of police, the heads of administration, uh, their own their own, their own individuals uh, beholden to the authorities in Kiev. So, of course, they backed away supporting the, the policies that were instituted, whether they had any idea just how terrible this thing w- w- uh, turned out to be, I don't know. But I'm certain they were told to back off and not interfere, and they followed orders. Mm. And you mentioned the, 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 the role of Washington in all this. What about the IMF? Because my understanding is they offered a a year ago, they offered a $17 billion loan guarantee, but it was conditional on Ukraine regaining control of the, the eastern region. Do you see that the brutality being employed, uh, or that was particularly employed a, a year ago, having been pushed up an octane level by those obligations to the IMF? I don't think the IMF loan was contingent on regaining control of the of the of the, the Donbass region, Michael. Uh, IMF stipulations are, and they were violated egregiously. Uh, they they stipulate that funds uh, given to a government are not to be used to wage wars of aggression. Uh, you know, it, they're 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 loaned because of economic issues, supposedly to get a country back mm-hmm. on its feet. But of course, IMF loans are exactly the opposite. They're to pay, pay bankers first. Uh, they're to uh, they, they come with, with with very very strict terms, privatizing state resources, uh, eliminating social benefits, and so. On and so forth. So it really is to is, is they they loan to to make to to give moneyed interest more opportunities to make more money than they have already. But the funds are not supposed to be used to wage war. Well, of course. <laughs> Uh, Ukraine's funds are used to wage war. They're used uh, for, the, for corruption, for whatever these people can steal. And Ukraine is notoriously corrupt, uh, certainly under Yanukovych, and I believe even more so under the thugs that are running the government right now. But uh, and, and, of course, the war going on in the, in the southeast, that really is at a low ebb now. And I've written several recent articles, one especially saying that uh, it's just a matter of time before full-scale war uh, resumes at Obama's discretion, Michael. I think it's baked in the cake. The article I wrote, I, I think I titled, the most recent one I titled, Chances for Peace in Donbass, colon, zero. Zero chances for peace. We have low-level conflict going on now. It's just a matter of time before it revs up full scale again. And Kiev is readying for it. Hundreds of U.S. combat troops and U.K. UK forces and Canadian forces are in Ukraine right now readying their military, their thuggish military, their national guard infested with Nazi types, their, their, their paramilitary battalions also infested with Nazi types. They're training them for combat. Why on earth would you have U.S. Western forces, mainly U.S. ones, training Ukraine's military, Michael, if it wasn't 
for combat purposes. Ukraine doesn't have any enemies except the ones it invents. And the purpose for training is to go back and escalate the war again and pick it up where it left off at the beginning of this year after the Minsk II agreement in February. And I think it's just a matter of time before full-scale war uh, returns to the southeast. And the people of Donbass, uh, the freedom fighters of Donbass, expect it, and I, I would imagine they're ready for it. Now, I wanted you, if you could put the Odessa incident in that tr- historical trajectory, I'm just wondering, what kind was it a, a watershed moment, uh, uh, a benchmark of sorts, uh, not just from the standpoint of the internal politics, but from the standpoint of journalism? Well, I think the incident overall, Michael, is an example of a, of a regime in Kiev, a fascist regime with Nazis, literally Nazis in it, wanting no opposition whatsoever, wherever it surfaces, in whatever way. So if you had people in Odessa who did not like the regime, uh, the solution is get rid of them by any means possible. The southeast of Ukraine, get rid of them by any means possible. Democracy is verboten, not tolerated. They want it crushed. They want total unchallenged control. They're getting rid of former government officials, journalists who report things accurately, I've written about that, murdering them or disappearing them or putting them in prison, just getting rid of all opposition elements. And this began straight away as soon as these people came into power a year ago. This is what the Ukrainian people face. Uh, If you have a fascist government, they simply don't tolerate anything. Hmm. Now, just returning to your book, Flashpoint in Ukraine, um, there's a number of... uh, articles and here are a number of emphases. Um, I don't know if there may be like a, a, a few that you'd like to uh, select. I mean, there's, a, there's the, uh, you know, Paul Craig Roberts has a, I think, a, a couple of interesting, uh, uh, they, they mostly seem to be focused on the larger geopolitical dimensions of this, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but uh, what, what, uh, would you like to, to uh, I don't know, what, what aspects of it would you like to highlight first? Oh, I'm not certain what aspect to highlight. I, I felt like, a, I felt so honored, Michael, to be among these distinguished contributors, including Michelle Chosodovsky, uh, to put out vital information that when the book was completed, I really felt that this was the seminal work on Ukraine, and we got it out in, in, in just record time, in two months. From, from the day I suggested the idea, I really didn't suggest it. I asked the editor at Clarity Press, Diana Collier, whether Clarity was considering a book on Ukraine, and she jumped on the idea and asked me if I'd be interested in editing it, and I, I'd never done that before, but I thought that was a wonderful idea and to be able to contribute to it myself but I think the contributors about 22 in all cover different aspects of what's going on there including media propaganda and and the big geopolitical issues and lots of those to cover and wonderful contributors like Michelle and Paul Greg Roberts and Rick Rosoff and Jim Petrus and the Project Sensor people Mickey Huff and uh, and Peter Phillips Uh, I hate to leave anybody out Michael Hudson uh, oh, so many wonderful people. I, I, I've got to look at the, I've got to look at the list to recall them all. But it, it, it was just an incredible array of people contributing their wonderful thinking 
to a vital issue that really was exploding in very dangerous conflict right on Russia's borders and the screaming headlines so often that continue to this day in an article I put out this morning, Michael, screaming about Russian aggression, quote-unquote. And, of course, a phrase I like to use is saying, the whole world knows there's no Russian aggression. There is no country that's done more to resolve the Ukrainian crisis peacefully than Russia, more than all European countries put together, and of course a number of them are thwarting it under pressure from Washington. And and uh, and and the book explains. I was so concerned, Michael, that what's going on and what continues to go on now could literally develop into a confrontation with Russia that that could, that could morph into something like a third world war or a nuclear war that could be the, potentially the demise of everybody. I mean, Ukraine sharing a 1,500 kilometer land and sea border with Russia, and America is so belligerently going after Russia right now, wanting regime change. Wanting wanted it for a long time, and using Ukraine as a pretext to go at Russia with media propaganda that's unrelenting, that, that just seems to be heading toward a very bad ending, Michael. Whether it would be the worst possible ending, I don't know. But it definitely is heading for something that's extremely worrisome, where we literally could see a military confrontation between America and Russia. And that hasn't happened since 1917, a little bit, when U.S. Marines, at the behest of Woodrow Wilson got it got involved in the Russian Revolution, which didn't involve a war of America against Russia. But uh, there's never been a confrontation between the two countries since. And of course, they were allies, maybe uneasy allies, during World War II, with the anniversary, the 70th anniversary of victory in Europe coming up. Stephen Lindman is the editor of a new book, Flashpoint in Ukraine, How the U.S. Drive for Hegemony Risks World War III, and that's put out by Clarity Press. Stephen Lindman, thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing your thoughts on this uh, fairly, this fateful uh, anniversary. Thank you so much, Michael. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. We're speaking right now with Roger Annis. He is a, a writer, a socialist. And uh, he is also one of the editors of NewColdWar.net, which is a, uh, uh, a current organ that's bringing forward news and uh, vital information from uh, the uh, troubled region uh, in Ukraine and around the whole Ukraine-Russia-NATO uh, standoff. So uh, he just returned from a fact-finding mission, a, a tour in the... Uh, in the uh, Donbass region. Do you, do you want to maybe tell us, Roger, exactly where you went during this tour? Sure. We, um, we were hosted by um, an organization of uh, Russian as well as German citizens that are interested in getting uh, writers and journalists uh, to eastern Ukraine so they can write firsthand about conditions there. And so we, uh, we spent one day in Moscow and then... Um, a total of four days after that, two full days in Donetsk City, which is in the um, province or uh, oblast 
of Donetsk, um, and then uh, a day on each side of that, uh, traveling in uh, the regions outside of Donetsk, Donetsk city in the, in Donetsk, Donetsk region. So, uh, yeah, altogether uh, four days traveling from Russia to Donetsk city and back. Okay. Now, this isn't your first time uh, conducting a, a fact-finding mission. Uh, uh, you've been to Haiti, for example, uh, and uh, brought forward interesting uh, news there. What distinguishes your tour here from other regions that you visited? Yes, I was also last year, I was in Crimea for one week, and then following that, spent a week in Moscow. Well, the difference this time is that we were, we were in a war zone. It's the first time I've being in a war zone, although, uh, you know, one could argue that, uh, you know, Haiti resembles something of a, a war zone that is a war by the big imperialist countries against the Haitian people. But this, you know, this has been Donetsk is the scene of the very intense warfare waged by Ukraine during the last year to crush a pro-autonomy rebel movement uh, in that region. And although there's a ceasefire that exists there that's been in place since February 12th, uh, the violations of the ceasefire by the Ukraine government are ongoing. We heard uh, shelling every night while we were in the city, and we visited the areas of Donetsk City, that is the northern stretches of Donetsk City, that are very adjacent to the ceasefire line. Uh, two neighborhoods there that we visited, and the shelling was going on not far from where we were. So, uh, you know, that's 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 the big difference in, um, you know, this trip compared to others that I've taken uh, either in uh, parts of Russia, or as you mentioned, in Haiti. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, unlike Haiti, uh, Yodonetsk is a, a very uh, well-developed, and uh, you know, at least until about uh, a year ago, before the, uh, the, the civil war and the, the, all the shelling that took place, what, what's some of the things that stood out for you as you visited this uh, city? Well, I think the main thing would be the ongoing tension over the uh, the political situation. Will there be a return to war, or uh, will the ceasefire hold? And more importantly, will there be some kind of a political settlement that can be reached? Uh, there's a couple of indicators suggesting that there's not a lot of goodwill on the Ukrainian side to reach a settlement. Um, for one, the Ukrainian government does not, you know, formally recognize the existence of the governing uh, structures now in Donetsk and neighboring Lugansk uh, regions of the country. Uh, They call these governing structures and the political uh, movements leading them terrorists. And they've called their war that they waged for the past year an anti-terrorist war. So that's not a very good omen for, um, you know, serious talks to reach uh, an agreement on what are, you know, some very fundamental and long-standing political grievances that the people of eastern Ukraine have. Uh, the other thing that's worrying is the um, is the welcoming by the Ukrainian government of foreign soldiers onto Ukrainian soil. That is approximately a thousand U.S., U.K., and Canadian soldiers that are are moving into the country, into the West for now. Although there's you know reports that the uh, foreign militaries have been in, observed in the East as well, but for now they say they're in Western Ukraine to train. Ukrainian army. Now, the Article 10 of the the Minsk the, of the ceasefire agreement, signed in Minsk, Belarus, on February 12th, expressly calls for uh, you know the withdrawal of foreign um, militaries from Ukraine. So the fact that the Ukrainian government would be welcoming uh, these foreign militaries is going in exactly the opposite direction to what uh, the ceasefire uh, agreement uh, requires. 
And so this is another bad omen for, for where things are going. And, you know, this was very, all of this is very much on the minds of the people uh, of Donetsk that we uh, talked to, uh, political leaders that we talked to as well, uh, including, you know, they're hearing like we were uh, shelling coming in, um, coming in every night. So it's a troubling, troubling situation overall. Yes. Um, you, you mentioned uh, that typically like every night people go into their basements or, or their bunkers and they're just hearing the shelling going on. Um, you experienced it yourself then? Um, yeah. Well, we were, as we were touring during the daytime hours, we were not far from where shells were coming in, probably a couple of kilometers. I mean, our safety, we weren't being reckless here. Our tour um, organizers were looking after us well. Um, but yeah, this is daily life for people. There was really only a couple of weeks after February 12th when the shelling more or less ceased. Now it's sort of intermittent during the night. It usually begins in the, you know, around 5 a.m. and it's been happening, uh, well, this would be for the last three weeks now. It's become more intense during the daytime hours. So depending on how close you are to the shelling, that is if you're a resident, um, then, uh, you know, you're going to have to, uh, spend the daytime hours also. Uh, underground in, in uh, you know, makeshift uh, a bomb shelter. So it's, you know, makes life pretty harsh. Uh, the shelling is going on in and around the Donetsk airport. This, you know, the airport was, uh, you know, hotly contested for a couple of months. It fell to the uh, self-defense forces of Donetsk in January of this year, if I have my month correct. And so, you know, Ukraine has sort of carried a grudge about that ever since. That's why, you know, the neighborhoods around the airport continue to be uh, the targets of, of shelling now about half of the uh, pre-war population of Donetsk city has moved out of the city uh, so it's about half a million people there now and the people that are you know the most um, uh, vulnerable to the shelling are living in the neighborhoods around the airport and these are you know working class neighborhoods the people that are there um, you know they don't have the means or the wherewithal to move as others have done you know many people in eastern Ukraine if they've moved to Russia and, and are living there either as sort of as formally recognized refugees or, you know, they move there and taken up a livelihood, um, you know, waiting for uh, peace to come back to the homeland. And smaller numbers of people have moved to areas of Ukraine, again, as war refugees. So the numbers are probably a million and a half in the whole of the war zone of eastern Ukraine. And as I said, about half of that number is um, Donet City. So the people left there, you know, they don't have family connections or they, you know, they don't, they, they're not, they're, they're, they're retired. So they're not going to move to Russia and take up, take up jobs or they just don't want to move. They've got different reasons for not doing so. So it's, you know, it's pretty, pretty harsh existence for them, both, uh, you know, the ongoing threat of the shelling, but also just the whole uncertainty that prevails now. Okay. What about vital infrastructure? Uh, how, how intact is it? Um, well, a lot of it was damaged, but what was interesting to see in Donetsk is that the center of the city, and then as you go south, uh, into the southern sections of the city, were largely intact from, you know, the, the shelling and bombings of the, the war, um, you know, that ended with, as of the ceasefire of February 12th. So that was good to see. The center of the city is in good shape. It's a beautiful city, incidentally, uh, which made it doubly nice to, to see. Um, so they're otherwise economically as well as politically, both of the Donetsk and the Lugansk republics are getting back on their feet. Um, you know, utilities such as electricity are more or less functional. Uh, railways that have been damaged have been repaired. The elect uh, I mentioned the electrical system. Very importantly, the financial system is getting on its feet. Basically, the governments of Donetsk and Lugansk have nationalized 
the banks of the Ukrainian oligarchs that dominated the economy there before. So they have the uh, beginnings of a banking system. And, and there was some good news when we were there, which is that uh, in Donetsk, and I think this is also true for Lugansk, the governments there are now in a position to pay uh, pensions to the old age, age pensioners. Ukraine stopped paying pensions and other social benefits to you know people there who are, after all, still, uh, formally speaking, citizens of Ukraine. Uh, last June, this was cut off. So this has, you know, imposed a great hardship on on pensioners. So the government's in a position to resume those payments, which was good news. And, you know, there is some economic activity. Uh, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning, this part, uh, eastern Ukraine is a heavily industrialized region. Now, a lot of that industry has been damaged. Coal mines have closed because they've been they've been bombed and shelled. Some factories have been damaged, but others are, are functional. And so, you know, there is an economy of sorts that's functioning. And there's a, you know, there's actually four recognized currencies, the Ukrainian, Russian currencies, and then the euro and the dollar. So, you know, that's that's a problem. And they have to decide one way or the other what the currency of the republics will be. But, you know, overall, we, we saw, um, you know, we saw a, societies, a society and a a governing structure and, and also an economy getting on its feet, and so that was that was very welcome to see. Well, it's interesting that you're seeing that uh, the nationalization of, of banking uh, and other industries happening in the wake of this uh, civil war situation, um, as if the uh, that civil. I mean, I'm wondering just how long people in the area have been. Uh, plagued by the the role of the oligarchs in their lives, and, and if this wasn't for all the violence and bloodshed, somehow liberating. Yeah, that's a very key point. I mean, this was a big part of the rebellion that took place, which you know I should stress, beginning last March in eastern Ukraine was a peaceful rebellion, a protest. It became violent only when the Ukrainian army and when the paramilitary right wing began to come in with their guns and violence to shut down the peaceful protests. But people in East, in Eastern Ukraine did not accept this turn to austerity Europe that the um, central Ukrainian government uh, declared last year. That is the government that came into power through coup d'etat against President Yanukovych. And so um, this was the source of the rebellion, peaceful protests. It turned violent because you know people responded in kind to the violence of the Ukrainian army. And a very sort of powerful feature in what people were protesting against was this, you know, was this Ukraine uh, that, you know, still for since independence in 1991 has been completely dominated economically by a very sort of uh, venal and uh, corrupt class of billionaires called oligarchs. Um, and so th- there's a very sort of powerful anti-oligarchic um, a thrust to the rebellion that's going on in eastern Ukraine. And, you know, I think this is shown by the first of the economic measures, because it, it's not just banks that have been nationalized. Also, the electrical uh, production and distribution system, uh, food distribution and retail has been nationalized. And so, you know, everyone that we spoke to in positions of political leadership in Donetsk said that, you know, among other things, the future uh, that they want to build as a, you know, as a, a future against oligarchs. Now, no one said that they didn't have their place. Um, there's varying views on this of exactly what uh, sort of place this, um, you know, the wealthiest class would have in a, in a future republic there. 
you know, nobody's out to sort of nationalize everything the oligarchs own by any by any stretch of the imagination. But they can't run the government now as as they uh, as they are presently doing in Ukraine and as they've done for the past 25 years. So that was quite a revelation to uh, to hear that sort of very directly and forcefully from. Really, I would say everyone we talk to, I mean, every, everyone just says, you know, we're not going to live in a country anymore where oligarchs uh, run the government and, uh, you know, and where we have so little democracy. Hmm. So uh, is that what's at the heart of what's being called this Novorossiya movement? Um, it's it's one of those. The Novorossiya is it's a historic term. It's sort of like if I don't know, to try and do an analogy in North America, if you talk about sort of the Appalachian region of the United States or... You know, you know, pick your region that's sort of got a distinct um, political and social history. You know, all proportions guarded. Nova Russia refers to that sort of historic stretch of land that begins in, you know, roughly the uh, Kharkiv region in eastern Ukraine, and then sort of sweeps south and then westward over towards Odessa. Um, you know, it's it's not really a political entity today, but it's 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 a region which had you know, a close um, a social as well as political affiliation to, uh, well, first of all, to the Russian Empire, then to the Soviet Union, and now today to the Russian Federation. There's, it, It's a varied thing. You can't speak of a real political entity of Novorossiya, but uh, many people in eastern Ukraine and also in south, southern Ukraine speak of, of this as sort of a, a future political entity that they want to be part of. This might be uh, federated with Ukraine, it could be federated with Russia, it could be an independent entity. Um, everyone has different opinions on that. So, you know, I, I use the term Novorossiya cautiously because it doesn't refer to an existing political setup, but it, it's it's more like a, an aspiration that people, you know, have an attachment to their Russian language and culture. Uh, they don't want to live in a country that's hostile to Russia. Um, as I said, they have different views of what the actual, you know, political relationship to Russia and to Ukraine would be. And then, you know, when you speak of Nova, the Novorossiya movement in general, yes, you're speaking of a movement in which, you know, a little bit like Russia itself today, in which, you know, the oligarchs, you know, do not run it as a, essentially as a dictatorship, which is, you know, uh, is a lot of what, uh, you know, is happening in, in Ukraine and has happened in the past. So, um, but yeah, certainly among many people we met in Novo, in Donetsk, they spoke of you know Novorossiya as sort of their political outlook and, and ambition. They want you know some kind of a political entity of Novorossiya that would have you know uh, a unity stretching across that territory that I mentioned. Russia, the European Union, uh, U.S., NATO. How are people seeing all of those different forces? Well, people in Donetsk are intensely aware of the fact that the U.S., the NATO powers, Canada included, are really on a political offensive against Russia. Uh, they, uh, they blame Russia for the war. That is, the NATO powers blame Russia for the war in eastern Ukraine a claim, an accusation that I think is completely false. Russia didn't start the war and that Russia can't end the war. Only Ukraine can, uh, the Ukrainian government can end the war that it's it started. Um, you know, but so, so people are intensely aware that, and they consider themselves un, under attack because the political offensive against Russia is also accompanied by a, a military buildup and, you know, all kinds of crazy military threats coming from 
the leaders of NATO and the United States in particular. So, yeah, people feel uh, that this is intense. And, you know, this is why we started our our website last year and called it New Cold War. We're, we're you know, we're into, um, you know, a phase of, of uh, political history of the world now, I think, where the NATO powers are looking to weaken and enfeeble Russia, if not even to, um, you know, to uh, attack it militarily and, and dismantle it. it. We're at a very dangerous stage of, uh, of politics in the world today. And, uh, you know, if we're going to avert the worst kind of disaster that, that could happen in this part of the world, then uh, people in Europe and North America need to wake up to this and begin to speak out against the war course that they're and the very aggressive political course that their governments are embarked upon. And for sure, people in both in Russia as well as in eastern Ukraine are deeply aware of this threat that they face and, you know, the very, very bad consequences because we're talking about nuclear powers that are, you know, uh, that are engaging in provocative uh, military actions. Um, are people, um, were you seeing people on the ground kind of, uh, I don't know, mourning uh, their their old country, uh, They, you know, just seeing the way things are being uh, split up? It looks like Ukraine, as we knew it, is, is no more. And I'm wondering if there is any a sense of, of loss there, or is there more of a sense of opportunity about what could be? I think it's a real mix of everything. For sure, there are people that... You know, you could say are are mourning what Ukraine has become. Um, you know, people that like the idea of living in a multinational, uh, multilingual uh, country. Ukraine is, you know, uh, culturally and otherwise a very rich uh, part of the world. It's uh, you know got a terrific history that can be very proud of, and so on and so forth. Um, so, but there's also we encountered a lot of people who said, "Look, we gave Ukraine a chance. We didn't really we." want to be part of this independent Ukraine when it was formed in 1991. But we weren't given any option at that time as to what we're going to do. So we sort of, you know, watch this. And But what, you know, we've experienced, that is we in eastern Ukraine, we've experienced a Ukraine that's become a very, uh, you know, rigid, ethnically um, uh, rigid and dogmatic place in which, you know, uh, Ukrainian ethnicity is valued above anything else. Uh, in which uh, no other language gets official recognition, uh, neither you know Russian or Crimean Tatar, uh, or the smaller languages, you know, have had anything more than what they call sort of you know a kind of a regional identification where numbers warrant and so on. And so, yeah, I would say there's a lot of resentment. Even people said, look, we gave this Ukraine a, a chance, and you know what have they done? We have, you know, we have a deep-going political disagreement now over the course of the country, and they come at it with come at us with uh, with gun, guns and bombs. And so, uh, you know, the people that are feeling that way, and there's lots and lots of them in eastern Ukraine, don't really see themselves as part of this country in the future. On the other hand, what surprised me and others on our delegation was the degree to which. The political leaders of the of the rebellion, or you know, and you can talk about leaders of the Novo Russia movement as well, um, don't really uh, they have no sort of set firm prescription on what the political future could be, uh, including they they think it's entirely possible you could have a a federated Ukraine that they would be part of, but there are you know some very essential conditions for that. One is of course an end to a 
the military conflict and war, an end to the hostile attitude and policy towards Russia, and an end to the economics uh, system, which is dominated by the, uh, you know, the wealthy class of of, of billionaires. And I, I could say also just you know a recognition of the of the you know an equal status for uh, Russian language and culture. I mean, those are pretty simple conditions that um, a different kind of Ukrainian government could uh, agree to. So this was, you know, I, th- I thought very interesting and even encouraging to hear that uh, people in the East hold out, you know, any uh, possible uh, political option provided some very basic, uh, you know, democratic and humanitarian values are met and respected. Okay. Now, I uh, just wanted to uh, bring us up to date here. I'm, I'm looking at, uh, this is uh, dated April 28th, so yesterday, and it's a headline, New Rockets Around Donetsk Puts New Pressure on Ukraine's Ceasefire. And uh, it, it basically, there's a, a st- it mentions Ukrainian military officials saying in a statement that pro-Russian rebels fired up unguided grad rockets Monday evening at the government-held town of Avdivka, and uh, reported in the Associated Press. And it also includes a, a statement from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which monitors the conflict. And it said that for the third time in four days, the rebels have prevented the mission from freely accessing the eastern part of Shryokine. And uh, that's what the OSCE said in a statement, making it seem like it's the uh, the, uh, the this uh, pro-sovereignty movement that's uh, standing in the way. Uh, your thoughts about these uh, recent <clears throat> news articles? Yeah, it, it, it does appear that in, um, I think it's roughly over the past week, there's been an intensification of of shelling and even even of combat in uh, the town that you mentioned, which is on the, uh, the coastline of the Sea of Azov. It's sort of halfway between the city of Mariupol, which is under Ukrainian government control, and the Russian border, that is the very south of Donetsk region. There's been uh, intensification of fighting there. And I mentioned, uh, I mean, we ourselves experienced the um, intensification of shelling in, in Donetsk city, and I think that that, you know, got worse after we left. So, you know, these are signs of the, you know, uh, that the ceasefire is... Um, um, you know, is 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 not holding entirely, and it and it's worrying. Um, you know, the OSCE mission issues reports every day, and so you know, every day there's you know, it's different. Some days they're saying that the Ukrainian army has prevented their movement. Some days it's a rebel movement. In general, the OSCE mission is biased against the rebel movement in the east. Um, it's you know, and this comes through very clearly in their reports. So, you know, so I, but I wouldn't attach too much importance to any one given report. I'm, I'm sure there were um, sound reasons why the observers were not allowed into that town by the by the rebel forces. In fact, it was an incident. Mm, it was while we were in Donetsk City. There was a journalist uh, badly injured by a landmine because they went into. I believe it was this very town. Um, the rebel forces, you know facilitated the OSCE and some journalists to go into this town for a day to look around. And uh, one of the journalists walking around off the beaten path, so to speak, stepped on a mine and there was some, you know, some fire, uh, gunfire opened up on the visit. So, yeah, it's, you know, there's not too much you can read, although overall what the OSCE reports have been showing in the past week is a 
you know, as a worsening uh, situation and, and deepening clashes along the, uh, the very in the very south uh, of Donetsk. So, um, yeah, that's, that's that's what I would read into that uh, report by Associated Press that you cite. Okay. Now, um, I also wanted to, you, you put up another post uh, at newcoldwar.net, which talked about uh, the uh, reports of torture by the Kiev forces. And uh, you're meeting with uh, the, the head of the, uh, the group that's, this, the Russian-sponsored group that, that put out these uh, reports of, of torture and uh, the brutalization of uh, captives from the, the uh, Donetsk region and I, I guess I'm wondering uh, what your take is on the fact that Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch don't seem to be quite uh, on the same page as uh, you know why, 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 why do they seem to be slow to recognizing these uh, brutality uh, except in, in a kind of a symmetrical saying well there's you know uh, violations on both sides well that's always been the tone of of both the amnesty and the human rights reports, they uh, they seem to bend over backwards to appear um, uh, neutral and balanced, even when the you know the balance of reports of human rights violations uh, point to the Ukrainian government. For example, last October, Human Rights Watch uh, issued a report, and the New York Times did its own independent report saying the same thing that. Uh, the Ukrainian government is using cluster weapons against the civilian population in the east of Ukraine. Uh, this was actually confirmed in, a, in one of the daily reports of the OSCE mission, which I happened to read in, I believe this was in January or could have been in February. Um, <clears throat> so on the issue of torture, I mean, this has been widely reported in both in Russian and as well, and, and also in uh, alternative Ukrainian media sources. But the, uh, the article that I wrote that you mentioned is based on uh, two very comprehensive reports prepared by a um, uh, civil society uh, foundation in Russia called the uh, Foundation for the Study of Democracy. And what they did over the course of six months from August 2014 until January of this year was interview 200 prisoners who had been released from Ukraine captivity. These are largely prisoners uh, freed by uh, the various prisoner exchange programs that have gone on. And so there, the reports by the prisoners of the treatment that they had um, endured while in Ukrainian captivity are very disturbing. Uh, very extreme forms of torture and prisoner abuse that, um, you know, appear to be uh, the norm. And, you know, the methods used are, you know, we're, we've been there, done this, uh, heard this before uh, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, the practices of the U.S. Army and others. So, uh, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, the report I wrote and uh, the work that other journalists might do might get more international attention to this because the two reports that the foundation published, one in November and then a, a more comprehensive one, in March of this year, you know, are, they tell a, a very troubling tale, and a, a lot more needs to be done to, uh, to put uh, international attention on this, uh, beginning with the human rights organizations that you mentioned, uh, but also this is something that, uh, you know, international media should be, uh, should be f- uh, focusing on. Uh, unfortunately, all the bias in this whole political situation that blames everything on Russia really just, I think, blinds uh, many people who would otherwise be objective to, you know, to looking at uh, 
these and other reports of of torture practice by Ukraine, and so we end up, you know, with um, you know, uh, I would say a form of complicity going on by virtue of the silence happening. Roger Annis is one of the editors and writers and contributors to NewColdWar.org, and you can read about his recent tour in uh, the eastern Ukraine region by uh, checking out his articles there. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.